Second John is one of those uh, books that I think it's easy for us to skip over because it's short, because First John is the one that talks about assurance of faith, so Second uh, John feels perhaps redundant or, or just maybe insignificant. If you, if you had somebody say, what is your favorite book of the Bible? I don't think I've ever heard somebody say Second John. That being said, there are some important truths and concise summaries of of uh, principles that John laid out in his letter of 1 John more broadly to a larger group of people that we find similarly but maybe reinforced in a, in a more focused way in 2 John. We find similar themes, discussion of the truth, the idea of keeping God's commandments, discussion of those who deceive, uh, mention of the Antichrist, uh, hospitality and related uh, how we relate to those around us, and then the idea of joy that is full or complete. What's the point of this short letter? We should rejoice over those who walk in truth. Rejoice over those who walk in truth. What does it look like to walk in truth alongside others who also walk in truth? Well, first of all, I think we see that we walk in truth by loving the believers. We have to, I think, for a moment pause and say, which believers are we talking about? Who is he writing to? It says, verse 1, to the chosen lady and her children. There have been three major ideas that have been put forth about the identity of the chosen lady and her children. Perhaps the most popular view, and one that seems to fit his pattern in his gospel and in 1 John, would be that he is writing to a church and the people who are part of that church. Um, the objection to this would be that there are not a uh, large number of references to the church as a lady uh, or to the members of the church as children, and that is a fair point. However, I think it's important to remember that John in 1 John referred often to children or beloved children, and so his... Uh, attitude toward other believers as an aged follower of God who had been faithful for many years, as far as we know, the last of the disciples to still be alive at the end of the first century, would be that it would not have been out of character for him to call people in a particular church children and to refer to the church as a lady. Why would he do this? Uh, one possible reason would be that there was a concern about persecution, and so instead of identifying the specific church, he sent the letter so that if it fell into enemy hands, so to speak, it would not have brought further persecution upon that group of people. We do know that there was a significant rise in persecution at the end of the first century into the second century. Uh, all of these are legitimate reasons. None of them in and of themselves are conclusive. A second idea that's been put forth is that he's writing more broadly to the church, the elect lady and her children. Uh, if this were the case, however, it seems odd that he says in verse 13, the children of your chosen sister greet you. That would make more sense in the context of one small church greeting another small church in another place, not one subset of the lady greeting another subset of the lady, like that, that starts to make less sense, I feel like. That view has been, I think, less popular for some of those reasons. A, a third view, which I think has equal merit to the first, is that he is writing to a specific lady and to her children, the members of her household. There have been a number of theories put forth as to which lady and which household. We see Paul, for example, 
um, writing to specific ladies and addressing the members of their house in some of his epistles. Um, so this would have not been unwarranted either. There are people, there are women who are significant in, in certain local churches. For example, Lydia in the church at Philippi. Um, so if someone said either he's writing to a specific church, lady refers to the church, children refers to the part, those who are part of that church, or he's writing to a specific lady and her children, members of her household, both of those I feel like are equally possible, likely. There's no huge contradiction in how we understand the letter if we take either of those two positions. Because the truth that he is writing seems to be broadly applicable to the church as a whole. And so uh, those are, the, those are the, the possibilities of who it is that he's writing to. Regardless of which position you take in that, it is clear that he is writing as an elder of a church to other believers. And in that context, he says, not only I, but all who know the truth, love those to whom he's writing. On what basis? For the sake of the truth, that abides in us and will be with us forever. Which then leads us to this idea that believers walk in truth. What sort of truth? Truth which remains. Truth, as we'll see as he continues in his letter, is primarily truth about Jesus, but also is truth that follows truth about Jesus. Here's who Jesus is, so here's how you should live. What does this truth accomplish? Well, verse 3 it accompanies belonging to the one true God. Where does it come from? Grace, mercy, and peace, he greets them with, from God the Father and Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. The grace, mercy, and peace come from God, this blessing, this greeting, this benediction, come from God and from Jesus in the context of truth and love. These are things which belong to those who know the one true God, who have received the gospel. So the truth continues... The truth is for those who have, have a relationship with God. And what does this truth result in, verse 4? It results in a changed life. I was very glad, to verse 4, to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we received commandment from the Father. They heard the gospel. They believed the gospel. Now they're living out the gospel. Believers walk in truth. And what does this specifically look like? In verses 5 and 6, and even the end of verse 4, believers love other believers. Love for one another, he says, fulfills God's command, just as we have received commandment from the Father. And you remember when we were going through 1 John, that there are a number of places where Jesus commanded his disciples to love one another. This is how all men will know you. If you have love for one another, they'll know that you're my disciples. Jesus said variously, this is a commandment that is from the beginning, and this is a new commandment that I am giving to you. I'm re-emphasizing it. I'm setting it in a new context. It's no longer in the context of what God was doing through Israel. Now it's in the context of the, of the early church that God is establishing. John picked up on those themes in 1 John and said, it is a new commandment. It is an old commandment. Love one another. But then he says an interesting thing. He says, not as though I was writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And so he's saying this is not something different than I taught you before, is I think the sense in which he's saying this. But the one that we've had from the beginning is the beginning from the beginning of time. It could be, but potentially from the beginning that Jesus and his disciples set out to teach the gospel. 
there was alongside it this command to love one another. But we see that obeying God's commandments collectively is love for God. This is love that we walk according to His commandments. So he said, I'm not writing a new commandment, but the commandment from the beginning that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to His commandments. So when we see that progression there, I think he's talking about love in two different ways. God commanded that you and I should love each other. How do we show love for God? We show love for God by keeping His commandments, which is to say, loving one another shows love for God. Now, that's not the only command that God gave to them. He's going to give them other instruction in this letter. Uh, There were a number of commands that Jesus gave. There are commandments or principles that are in all of the different letters that were sent to the various churches. And so loving one another is not the only thing that God said to do. We could potentially make the case that loving one another is foundational, that a, a lot of the other commands flow out of loving one another. So, for example, if it says, forgive one another, well, what would, on what basis would the forgiveness happen? Because we have love for one another, because God has loved us and we love God, that's sort of the foundational, but then there's a lot of more specific things. If he says in the book of Romans, admonish one another. Here's truth. Here's how you're living. Does the way that you're living match up with this truth? Well, admonish one another is a subset of love one another, but it's not, we shouldn't use them interchangeably or generically. Pray for one another. Confess your sins to one another. Uh, Serve one another. Help one another. Be patient with one another. All of these one another commands in the New Testament lay out for us specific ways that we can love one another. But loving one another at, at its core is what distinguishes those who follow God from those who don't know God. And specifically, going back to the ideas that he laid out in 1 John, if you love your brother, it's one of the tests of salvation. Love one another. God commands us to do that. Obeying God's commandments collectively shows love for God. And then he says another thing at the end of verse 6. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. What is it that they are walking in? There have been various uh, ideas put forward for what the it is. Is the it love? Is the it all of God's commands collectively? Is the it truth? Even though it's further away from it, the idea of walking in truth is back at the beginning of verse 4, and then the idea of loving one another we find in verse 5, and so there's there's a tendency of people when we're identifying a pronoun in a letter, uh, in one of the epistles, to look for the closest reference. But that's not always the accurate thing to do. And in this case, I would make the argument, he's saying, the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, that you should walk in truth. Now, that's not disconnected from loving one another. That's not disconnected from obeying God. But it ties this whole section together if we take the it as truth. So what he's saying is, I'm rejoicing that I heard some of you are walking in truth. Now, is he saying the rest aren't walking in truth? I don't think he's necessarily saying that. He's saying, I've heard about these ones that they're walking in truth. I think his expectation and hope would be that the rest of them are too. But I specifically heard this family, this household, this group of people, they're walking in truth. Okay? What does that look like? 
They're showing love for one another in fulfillment of God's command. But they're also showing love for God by obeying all of His commandments collectively, and they're fulfilling God's commandment by walking in truth. And that sort of ties the whole section together. Walk in truth by loving the believers. So how do we rejoice and what sort of people are we supposed to rejoice? Those who are walking in truth by loving the believers. We talked about this in 1 John. Um, You say, I love you. But you never talk to the person. You never do anything for the person. You never spend time with the person. You never help the person. You never are there for the person. It's really hard to make the case, objectively, that you do, in fact, love that person. If you say, I love you, and you go up and you punch them in the face, and you kick them in the shins, and you do whatever things that are harmful to that person, it's again hard to argue that you love that person. So when he says, walk in truth by loving the believers, he's thinking about specifically the sort of love that God has demonstrated to us. A sacrificial love, a love that it's for the good of the other person. When we see people who are doing that, then we can say, with John, they are walking in the truth. God says, here's how I want my people to live. Here's the sort of God that I am. If we believe that, then we are walking in truth. This will be parallel to uh, Paul's phrase um, that talks about um, walking in vain versus walking worthy. Uh, We'll talk more about that when we come to uh, verse 8. We might prefer it, I think, if John stopped with love one another. Because the next part of what he writes is difficult. But genuine love for truth and for one another demands a further step. We also walk in the truth by rejecting the deceivers. Why do we need to do this? Well, because deceivers reject Jesus. We see this in verse 7. Deceivers reject Jesus. He says in verse 7, Many have gone out into the world. This is not one person, two people, a handful of people. There are many who deceive by spreading a false message about Jesus. What specifically did John have in mind that they were deceiving people about? Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Now, again, when he says Jesus Christ, that's not Jesus' first name and last name. This is significance about who he is. In the context of him being named Jesus, he's described to be God with us in the book of Matthew. In the title of Christ, he's referred to as the Messiah, the anointed one sent from God to be his righteous servant. Ties it back to the book of Isaiah. The idea of coming in the flesh is that he actually became human, added humanity to himself. Philippians 2 would say he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death by taking on the form of a man so that he could die and by actually going to the point of death to accomplish salvation. And so in that short little phrase, Jesus Christ come in the flesh, there is a lot of truth packed into that. So when they're denying those things, it's not just that they're saying, well, Jesus was just a good man, but not God, or Jesus was a great teacher, but not the Messiah, or Jesus was whatever. They're rejecting all of those core teachings about who Jesus is. And this strikes at the heart of the gospel. 
If you don't acknowledge Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, who came, actual historical event, real thing that happened for a specific purpose to accomplish salvation, how can you say, I follow God when God said that Jesus is the only way? The answer is you can't. Why are they deceivers? Because they're saying, you know what God said? Not that. Which again kind of goes back to the Garden of Eden. Well, God said that, but did he really mean it? Well, God said that, but will this actually happen? Let me tell you what's actually going to happen instead. So the deceivers are echoing the pattern in the words of Satan. Well, God said, but not really. Well, God said, but you know better. This is really important because the action that is taken in verse uh, 10 and 11 seems harsh if it's just a minor point of disagreement. Well, this person thinks that we should fill in the blank on a, on a non-salvation kind of issue. This person thinks that men should not shave their, be their beards because of the, the verse in Leviticus or Exodus that says rounding the corner of your beard is a mark of those who worship the dead and participate in pagan religion. And they're convinced of it based on that verse. Now, if they're convinced that that's what they should do personally and they're not making it like a test of are you or aren't you a Christian, then someone could hold to that interpretation and we don't have to part ways with them. But if it comes to something that says, you know, the, the core of the Bible, the Messiah that's been promised, Emmanuel who said to come, he didn't come, he's not God, he isn't what the Bible says he is, that strikes at the very heart of the faith. And John's words are harsh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Now he said in 1 John that there's a spirit of Antichrist in the world and many Antichrists have gone out. And I think he's paralleling the, the idea from 1 John 2 where he says there are those who have gone out, no longer part of us, showed by their going out, they're not part of us, they have no place with us. Harsh words for a significant rejection of the truth of God. What's the response of God's people? Believers are to reject the deceivers. Believers are to reject the deceivers. Watch yourselves. This is where I think there's a parallel with uh, themes from the Old Testament. Uh, there's the idea of the watchman on the wall in Ezekiel. There is the idea of guard your heart with all diligence in Proverbs. There's the idea of the warnings of the prophets against the people of Israel that they would not stray away from God, even though they repeatedly continued to do so. Watch yourselves. This is an ongoing task. This is not a thing that's accomplished by sleeping in on a Saturday. I'm not saying it's sinful to sleep in on a Saturday, but if our attitude toward the Christian life is, I sleep in, I get around to it when I feel like, it's not really that much of a priority, 
We're not watching ourselves the way this passage talks about. Why is it significant that you do not lose what we have accomplished? This is where I think there's a parallel, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, to Paul's idea of walking worthy and that he would not have run in vain and they would not have believed in vain. So 1 Corinthians 15 uh, talks about the core ideas of the gospel and he says these things bring you salvation if in fact they're genuinely believed by you and you haven't wandered away from them and you haven't strayed from them. Paul said to the Thessalonians that I was concerned that the tempter would have tempted you and that the work would have been in vain. John, I think, is saying a similar thing in a pastoral, parental, um, diligent kind of way. He's watching out for their souls, saying, I'm concerned that you don't wander away from the faith. Because if you don't watch yourselves, and if you listen to those who deceive, you're going to lose all of the things that have been built up, all of the work that God has accomplished in you at this point, all of the all of the, what good is it if you, in the end, turn away from it? And he says instead that you may receive a full reward. Now again, you know, we could get into the discussion of what does this mean for the subject of apostasy. I think his point is, again, not to explore all the parameters of that, but simply to say, if you don't watch yourself, if you wander away from the faith, you're not going to be getting a full reward. And we can argue about whether that means you barely get into heaven in the last moment in a deathbed confession, but that's not the thing we ought to be banking on. This is a serious, sober thing. Watch out that you're not deceived to start to doubt the core truths of the gospel, because if you do and you wander away from the faith, you're not going to receive a full reward. You, you might, um, it, there's a hint of this in Jude, it says, um, so, uh, from some sort of like snatch them out of the flames. Like this person is on their way to eternal punishment away from God and your pleading and the work of the Holy Spirit saves them, so, so to speak, at the last moment. Well, it is better to be in God's presence with your clothes singed off and, and the, the fire of hell smoking on you that shouldn't be our ambition. He says in verse 9, why is this important to reject the deceivers? Because anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. In contrast, the one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. This is where some of the discussion that we had in the last few weeks about theological systems and uh, logical conclusions about the Bible and all those sorts of things, we need to be very careful when we start to extrapolate beyond what the Bible has clearly said. Now, can we say, based on this verse and this verse, I think this? Absolutely. When we make that a test of faith, when we become more concerned about that than the clear statement of Scripture, we start to have a huge problem. Because... I could have a progression of thought that says something like this. God is sovereign in salvation. That means that God can save whomever he wants. That means that I'm not going to tell anybody about Jesus. That's a logical progression, but it clearly contradicts the clear statement of Scripture. So 
John seems to be making the case that these deceivers probably didn't set out to be deceivers in the first place. They started with what the Bible said, and like the Pharisees, they added to and came to all of these conclusions and read things back in and all of that and ended up saying things that God did not say in contradiction to what God had clearly said. We have to be very careful of this. Is it wrong for us to do less than the Bible says and directly abandon things that God has said to do? Yes. But it is also equally bad and perhaps in some ways more dangerous because it's not as obvious to us to add to what God has said. I'll give you an example of this. The Pharisees said, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. They defined the precise number of steps you are allowed to walk on the Sabbath day. Jesus said, your neighbor's animal falls into a ditch. You're going to get it out? Can't. It's 32 steps away and I'm only allowed to walk 30 steps today. He says, no, obviously you're going to help them out. Here's this man who has a withered hand. Should I heal him on the Sabbath? What's the point of the Sabbath? Was it for you to be enslaved to a set of rules by which you thought you could earn your favor with a righteous God? No, it was supposed to remind you that you belonged to the righteous God and that you would share his heart of compassion and mercy with those around you. So if I don't heal him, I am not acting in the spirit of what God intended. And the Pharisee said, no, you broke the rule. Whose rule was it? It wasn't God's rule, it was their rule. And so here's the progression someone might go on. Well, can we actually know that Jesus came to earth? Perhaps this is one of those myths or legends like the story of Robin Hood or the legend of King Arthur. You know, there was a man potentially named this, but all of these things have been invented by his followers, you know, like many other religions in the world, to, to gain a following and to, uh, to, to, you know, a lot of churches have a lot of money. So if they can persuade you that there is this figure that you need to believe in, then they can collect membership dues and they can gain political power and... and it, they start to question these things because from a rational human perspective, the idea of God picking a backwater country, a nobody town, as the place for the birth of the ruler of the universe makes zero sense whatsoever. Now, I'm not saying logic and faith are at odds. I'm saying logic that is not in service to faith will quickly lead us astray. So when he says, goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, he's saying, we take what God has said and we go beyond it. Well, I know God says this, but let me add this thing to it. If you don't go to church and give this amount of money in the, in the offering, then you're not a good Christian. If you don't say God's name in this specific way, then you have no part with God. If you... There's hundreds, if not thousands, of ways to fill in that blank. That people have said, here's what Jesus said, let me add to it my own ideas, and then say, this is what you need to do. 
He says, anyone who goes too far does not have God. But the one who abides in the teaching has the Father and the Son. So what's the response? Why do we do it? To guard against loss of reward. In what context do we do it? The false teaching of the deceivers. How do we do it? If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Again, what's the context? These are not minor disagreements. These are things that strike at the very heart of faith at the core of the gospel. The consequence is to treat that person as an outsider. Um, I think people have read this verse and they've seen in it perhaps the idea of shunning. Um, I think we have to balance this or tie it to the example of Jesus himself. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. So he's not saying anybody who is sinful don't welcome that person. What's he saying? In the specific context of someone who has said, I am a follower of Jesus and teaches things clearly contrary to Jesus, you cannot act like that person is a true follower of God. The applications of this, I think we would immediately jump to things like Christian conferences and books and what do universities do. I would make the case that to the extent someone like Billy Graham in the later part of his ministry either unwisely or without thinking of all the consequences or whatever, because there's clearly points all along the way that he's preaching the gospel, there comes a point where he sends some of the people from his crusade back to a Catholic church. Why would he do that? That doesn't make any sense. Does that mean that he was not preaching the gospel for all those years before or even that moment? No, but in that act, he is doing something parallel to the confusion of the gospel that is going on here. Now, would I put him in the same category as someone who denies the Trinity or denies the fact that Jesus is God or starts talking about the God of the Bible as the mother goddess or something like that? No, I wouldn't put him in the same category as that person, but I would be very hesitant about naming the school of theology at my seminary for him or college. That being said, that's not what John is talking about here because it's real easy for us to get worked up about what the SBC does or what the Methodist denomination does or what whoever else does because it's way over there and has no practical effect on our daily lives. What does he say about it here? He says, if the false teacher who's denying Jesus comes to your house and says, hey, brother, will you let me in? You have to say no. And you don't call him brother or sister back, depending on the person. You don't say, well, I know you don't believe in Jesus, and I know you, you, know, you, you call yourself uh, a Christian, and I would really like to spend time with you, so we'll just let it slide just this once, and you know, we'll, we'll act like everything's fine, and, and this isn't a big deal, and we'll hang out, and we'll, we'll have fellowship. What is the biblical definition of fellowship? 
the relationship between God and his people and between people who follow God and one another. If this person doesn't follow God, I can't have fellowship with that person. If this person denies Jesus as God, I cannot accord them the respect that they are demanding as a legitimate minister of the gospel, teacher of the Bible, whatever else. And this is hard. What does this look like for family gatherings? Let's say that you have someone who is a a minister in a denomination that doesn't teach Jesus as God. And you know that this person doesn't teach Jesus as God. Do you call him pastor? I would argue that you probably shouldn't, or at least you should be making it very clear that you understand that he's not teaching Jesus the way the Bible teaches him. And this is not a popular thing because it creates difficulties, it creates controversies, it creates awkwardness. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, I didn't come to bring a peace, bring peace, but to bring a sword. We have people in foreign countries who are going to be killed if they confess the name of Jesus, but we're so comfortable in the United States that if we have to have a little bit of awkwardness at a family reunion because so-and-so calls himself a minister of such-and-such and and we will not acknowledge him as a Christian or he starts to talk about all of these things and we say, well, what about the gospel? We don't want to do that. Now, am I saying we have to go out of our way to be deliberately obnoxious to find out every last detail about a person to create those situations of difficulty? No. But think about the context of the early church. There aren't hotels like there are today. There weren't Airbnbs. There weren't fill-in-the-blank nice accommodations that you would take care of on your own. If you were going to travel and you were going to stay with someone... You would stay with someone in the connection of the church where you're going to be ministering at. That person comes and speaks at that church and brings a message that doesn't match up with what God says. John says you've got to refuse hospitality to that person. You are not welcome here as a teacher of the gospel because you don't teach the gospel. Well, that's mean. That's harsh. That's unfair. Which is more important? That person being received and have comfortable accommodations or that the truth of the gospel is not confused. That the truth of the gospel is not confused. Now, I want to be clear. I don't think this is primarily directed toward a context in which um, Maybe you have a family member who is an unbeliever who used to be a part of church, doesn't identify with that church anymore. I think that goes back to the situation that Jesus says about, or that Jesus demonstrated as far as tax collectors and sinners. If you have someone who's not claiming to be a Christian come to your house, you're not confusing the gospel because no one's pretending that person's a Christian. If you have someone who says they are a Christian but denies core truths about who Jesus is, that's when the problem starts to come in. People have gone back and forth and they've said, all right, so let's say that there's this person and they abandon their church and they don't want anything to do with God but they still maintain that they're a Christian. Is it... um, 
can you have them over for a meal? I think John is specifically focused on those who are actively teaching falsehood about Jesus. Not those, not just people who are personally denying the truth of the faith. Now, I'm not trying to split split hairs here, and there are people that I think legitimately would say, you know, I will go to a family gathering that's hosted at someone else's house where so-and-so is at, but I will not invite them to my house because of this passage. I'm sympathetic to that understanding, but I think false teachers who are actively trying to spread false teaching are a more dangerous subset of those who reject God than just someone who professes to be a Christian, but their testimony and their belief doesn't match up to it. We can discuss that more in the discussion time, some some practical, you know, what does this look like kind of scenarios. Here's the basic principle. If I treat as a Christian with right standing before God, someone who is actively teaching things contrary to the Bible, I am dishonoring God. I am confusing the gospel. I am disobeying the admonition that John lays out here. And I'm laying the groundwork for other people to be deceived by that person's false ministry, which is why John's saying it's such a big deal. John basically says this, if we accept such a person as a Christian, we are sharing in God's judgment on that person. If you're participating in his evil deeds, it would be, I'm not the person who did the murder, but I'm the accessory to the murder. Does the accessory to the murder have any consequences? Yes. Not as severe as the person who did it, but you're supporting them. Does the person who lied about the person who robbed the store have any consequences? Yes, not as severe as if you actually robbed it, but there are consequences nonetheless. And so if we, we have to be very careful against putting ourselves in a scenario of what it says at the end of Romans 1. They not only participate in such things, but there are some of them who heartily approve of the things that are done. This is hard. Because what if the person who's denying who Jesus is was one of us that was sitting in here? And you've known that person your whole life. And now they go out and they start teaching Jesus is not God. And you start to say, brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, fellow church member, etc., etc., etc. That's hard. And why do I bring that up? Because in the ministry of the apostles in the early church, there were clearly people who had been partners in gospel work who went out, rejected the faith, and were not to be received in the way that they were before. Could you talk to them? Yes. Could you potentially even get together and spend time with them? Yes, because at that point, you're trying to reach that person with the gospel that they've rejected, but you cannot accord them recognition as a fellow believer because the things that they are teaching and the way that they are living give the lie to that profession. And so I think John has something different in mind here primarily than church discipline. He's talking about potentially someone who comes in from the outside saying, let me, let me share with you about Jesus. You know, traveling evangelist, visiting speaker, whoever else. If it turns out that their message isn't from Jesus... We don't brush it under the rug and say, oh, well, you know, well, we invited him in. This looks bad for us to send him away now. We say, if he's saying things that are false about Jesus, I can't act like he's a fellow Christian. 
John ends on a positive note. After the initial encouragement, verses 4 through 6, and the sober warning, verses 7 through 11, he ends on a positive note. He, he states his goal that he picked up in verse 4, and now uh, he picks up again in verse 12 this idea to rejoice in God's work among all who walk in truth. How does this take place? It takes place, I think, verse 4, through reports of others. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth. We don't know exactly where John was when he writes this letter, but he's clearly talking about something he's not observing firsthand, but he's received reports of, hey, I heard that you are believing the truth and walking in the truth. Kind of like Paul says to the Romans and to the Thessalonians, your faith has resounded throughout the region, and people know that you follow God and are devoted to God. John receives a similar report, whether by letter or by word of mouth, hey, I've heard that you are walking in the truth, and that encourages me. And he wanted to do it through firsthand observation and fellowship. He says in verse 12, I don't want to do all these things with paper and ink, but I want to come and speak face to face to you so that your joy may be made full. I've rejoiced that you're walking in the truth. I'm going to come encourage you from God. I can be encouraged. You can be encouraged by my coming. All of us can rejoice in the work that God is doing among us all. And then he shares a greeting as well in verse 13. A greeting from God, verse 3. A greeting from fellow believers in verse 13. John's short letter might appear to state the obvious, that we should walk in truth and live for God, that we should watch out for those who claim to walk in truth but live and teach a lie. But these two principles build on the study we just finished in 1 John, which is to be certain where you stand with God. And while we can't see people's hearts, John says we need to assess their words and actions and on the basis of those things, see who is actually a part of God's people and who is not, because failing to be on our guard for those who would undermine the faith is a very dangerous thing and leads people astray from what God said, love one another, walk in the truth, fulfill God's commandments. So John reminds us to rejoice over those who walk in truth, loving the believers, rejecting the deceivers, and rejoicing together in God's work. Let's pray. Father, I pray that these truths in this short book would be ones that would weigh on our hearts, not in a overwhelming sort of fashion, but that we would take them soberly into heart. That again, as we just got done looking at in 1 John, what is a mark of true belief? that we love one another in obedience to your commands, that we walk in truth to give a good testimony of you, but then also this warning to watch out for those who are denying who you are. So many voices around us in this world say false things about the Bible and about Jesus and about the Trinity and about all of these core uh, things about the faith. Father, I pray that you would help us to be on our guard against those things and primarily to the extent that they affect us right in our own homes and in our own church. It's, it's one thing to be aware of a potential threat that's hundreds of miles away that maybe nobody is familiar with or being led astray by or all of those sorts of things, but it's a completely other thing when we encounter someone face-to-face who is teaching things that are false. Someone says, I want to come speak at the church, but they're not... Um, preaching the gospel, 
then I have a responsibility as the pastor to say, no, you can't come do that. And if somehow by oversight of, of mine or through the congregation, we, we make a, a, a poor recommendation and someone comes and teaches things that are clearly false and against your word, then Lord, I pray that you give us wisdom in our responsibility to reject the authority and the title and the identification of that person as someone who is just like us. Because the truth of the gospel is more important in that instant than the relationship with that person. And more important than our personal comfort and ease and avoiding awkward situations and all of those sorts of things. And Lord, I realize that each of us has a different disposition. Some of us want to avoid every conflict. Some of us want to get right in there in any conflict. And so if we're the person who's, who's ready to, to get up in arms over everything... Help us to make sure that it's not minor things that we're getting up in arms about. And for those of us that find difficulty to ever say anything contrary to anybody, I pray that you would help us to see which things really matter that you call us to oppose, even though it's really hard for us in terms of personality and experience and all of those things. And Lord, collectively, that the balance of our different personalities and experiences and familiarity with your word would collectively lead to a right response from us as your church toward those who would undermine the gospel in whatever ways. Again, I think it's easy for us to be worried about that for things far away that seem far distant from us and maybe be very bold about those things, but then in our day-to-day lives fail to make clear, here's the line, here's those who follow Jesus of the Bible, here's those who don't. Which side of the line are you on? This is the thing that we're committed to. I pray that you would give us grace to do this um, humbly, but also boldly, clearly, but also patiently. And um, even the conversations we have as far as witnessing, it's not the direct situation that's applied here, but if someone... If we're talking to someone about you and someone says something that clearly contradicts the Bible, not so much about more of the broad implications of it, but something that strikes at the heart of the gospel, give us wisdom and boldness to say, no, the Bible says this about Jesus. Lord, help us not to be timid. Help us not to be bold in ourselves, but help us to have a right commitment to your truth, to love one another as we should to cling to your truth that has been revealed to us so that there might be rejoicing that your people are faithfully walking with you for the sake of other churches around us, for ultimately your sake, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.